All right, so we're going to dig into it a little bit further this morning. And uh, last week we talked about that Adam and Eve were made in his image. Uh, they're made in the image of God. Um, just to, again, clear up another point of confusion, all men are made in God's image. I'm, I'm, some, some guys have heard me say, well, then you've basically said nobody's made in God's image. No, everyone is made in God's image. What I'm trying to stress is it's one thing to be made in his image. It's another thing to bear his image. Okay, that's the difference I'm trying to make here is that all men are made in his image. All men hold a value and worth in God's eyes because he created them. But not all men bear his image, walk in his image, shadow his image. They were created, Adam and Eve were created to shadow God, to everywhere God went, they went. They walked with him, they talked with him, they had fellowship with him, and they were literally his shadow. The brightness of his glory created them. And remember, everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was sanctified, set apart. If you think about it, the whole creative order, the universe, the stars, the planets, everything, earth, animals, vegetables, man and woman, were set apart by God for what purpose? To bring him glory. They were to bring him glory. And they did. They did bring him glory. They, they effectively did what they were made to do. So as long as Adam and Eve walked in the garden, as long as they walked with him and fellowshiped with him, as long as they cared for the animals like they were told to, everything brought him glory. Everything did what it was supposed to do. It was set apart, sanctified by God. And, and that's important for us, to, again, to understand when we talk about sanctification, it's really no different. You and I have been set apart by God, and we are to bring him glory. Now, one of the things that, that hit me this last week, and, and it's probably because I'm studying through uh, the book of Deuteronomy right now, is uh, Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, had been set apart by God. They didn't even exist, just like Adam and Eve didn't exist. The animals didn't exist. The sun, the moon, the stars didn't exist. The earth didn't exist. God chose the people of Israel. He actually chose Abraham, who was from Ur. And he, out of him, he made a great nation. That was his promise to Abraham. So he, he creates this great nation. He says, you're my chosen people. You're my royal priesthood. You, you are precious in my sight. There's no other nation that has a relationship with me like you. And you are to what? Bring me glory. He gave them his law. He gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them all these things. He gave them his Shekinah glory in the presence of his, um, a cloud, a, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. He dwelt in the tabernacle and later on in the temple, he had this incredible relationship with them. And what did they do with it? What did they do? They rejected it. They rebelled. They turned against him. They sinned. They sought other gods. Yet they had been set apart. It's really a mirror of what Adam and Eve did. Set apart, made, created, breathed life into you, set you here, gave you a mandate, told you what to do, told you what not to do. And what did they do? They did what they weren't supposed to do. God did the same thing with Israel. He told them what to do. Obey my law. If you obey my law, you'll be blessed. If you disobey my law, you'll be cursed. And what did they do? They disobeyed his law and they were cursed and they were cast out. They were kicked out of Jerusalem. They were kicked out of Judea. They were kicked out of the promised land. And so we see this mirrored in the people of Israel. You know, we, we saw this last week. God created man in his own, own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And, and they had 
a perfect relationship with God. And, and what he said was, everything is very good at this point. And we harped on this last week. He makes the universe, he makes the stars, he makes the beasts, he makes the fish, he makes the vegetation. And every time he goes, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then he makes man and woman, and then he says, now it's very good. Everything is very good. Well, what does that mean? We didn't talk about this last week, but the Hebrew word for good is taub. And it's a, it's a very rich word, as most Hebrew words are, and it has to do with something being right, excellent, better. It's like God said, now it's better than it even was. It was good, 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 good. Now it's even better. Now it's excellent. Why? Because he made man and woman. And they were to care for, they were to steward, they were to have dominion over the things that he had made. And, and now it's, it's really, really good. This is great. This is perfect. And that, that word ha has to do with physical beauty. You know, we, we don't have the, the capacity to go back and see what the garden looked like, to see what the original creation looked like. But I have to believe it was gorgeous. It was beautiful because God made it. And if God said it's good and then he says it's very good, it had to be very good. So when we go out and we look at the Grand Canyon, you go to Hawaii and you look at the beauty of Hawaii, or you go to any beautiful place on this planet and you say, man, that's gorgeous. That's incredible. It is, but it's a fallen version, a shadow version of what it used to be. And the only real picture we get of what it might have looked like is when we read the book of Revelation and we see that God restores everything and he recreates everything and he makes it all new and we're going to see a new creation that is probably even better than the first creation. But it's, it's beautiful. Everything about it's beautiful. I think Adam and Eve were beautiful. I think they had no physical flaws. I think they probably had 0% body fat. They were just, you know, they were gorgeous. Because God made them. And he says, it's good. It's great. It's excellent. It's, it's flawless. And more importantly, it's morally pure. Everything he made was morally pure. That's what this word also means. So taub not only means it's beautiful to the eye, but it's also morally perfect. And that's really hard for me to imagine. A place, a thing, a person being morally perfect and without flaw. You know, I get up in the morning and I see nothing but flaw. One of the bad things about getting cataract surgery and having your eyes fixed is I used to be able to walk into the bathroom, look in the mirror because I wear glasses and I couldn't see myself. Now I can. It's really depressing. So what you do is you leave the lights off. Um, they didn't have that problem. They were not only gorgeous, they were morally perfect. Everything about creation was morally perfect. And the word taub in the Hebrew is the opposite, the extreme polar opposite of evil. Okay, and this is, this is important this morning. These two words are going to be really important. Because look at what God says. That Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Taub, excellent, better, perfect. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree that gave them eternal life as long as they ate it, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, somebody's going to want to ask me, and you'll probably come and say, why in the world did God make this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? My answer to that is I have no clue. I don't know why God made this tree. But I know that if God made this tree, God had a purpose behind the tree, and God knew what he was doing by placing the tree there. God could have made the garden without this tree, but he chose to make this tree, and he wasn't surprised what happened when they ate of the tree, because he told them what would happen. He also wasn't surprised that they did eat of the tree, because he had a plan in place from before the foundation of the world to fix the problem they created. 
So God puts this tree there, and it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two words, taub, good, excellent, morally perfect, beautiful, righteous, without flaw, and ra. Ra means without value. It's got no worth. It's totally the opposite. It's got wickedness aligned with it, malignant. It's, it's putrid. It's just think of the worst things you can think. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and then going to the local dump. It's totally the opposite. One is gorgeous, one is beautiful, one is evil, one is wicked, one is malignant, one, one is totally the opposite. And, and he, he says it's the tree of the knowledge of these two things, good, excellent, worthy, morally perfect, and evil. And that is really important because it holds the potential for both. The, the tree of life only held one potential, eternal life. If you ate it, you, you kept living. This tree offers two options. It's almost like it's got two fruit, and it's tied to the word knowledge. Now, this word knowledge is really important because when we think knowledge, we think cognitive ability. You know, uh, we know something. I had a guy come up to me last night, and we're, we're going to look at a passage in just a second where Lamech, the father of Moses, is 182 years old, and he, he has uh, Noah as his son. And this guy comes up to me. He's actually a judge, very smart man. He gets his Bible out, and he goes, he goes I'm going to show you that uh, Methuselah died the same year the flood took place. And I'm like, great, have at it. So he gets his Bible out, and he starts going through all the numbers. And, and I, about halfway into it, I said, you have completely lost me. I said, I'm not a numbers guy. And he goes, oh, I am. Well, obviously you are, and he, but he proved it, but I was lost. I do not have the knowledge of numbers. I don't want the knowledge of numbers. Uh, I'm a creative guy. I'm not a left brain guy. This word isn't about cognitive knowledge. It's about experiential knowledge. It's the same Hebrew word used of Adam knew Eve. And if anyone in here doesn't know what that means, come talk to me. Adam had sex with Eve, all right? Adam had a relationship, a physical relationship with Eve. They had sex. They had children. As a result of that, Adam knew Eve. Same word. It's, it's a word that conveys experience. So when it says the knowledge of the tree, of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's basically you're going to now know good and you're going to know evil experientially. You're going to experience evil. Now think about that. God says, don't eat of this tree. He has just said, everything is good, 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 very good. Everything's excellent. Everything's morally perfect. And then he puts this tree there. And if, he says, it offers you the knowledge, the experience of good. Why in the world would they need that? They have everything around them that's good. They are good. Why do they need good? They don't. What does it also offer? Evil, the knowledge of evil. And what does Satan tempt Eve with? Eat of this tree and you will be like God. It was a lie. God doesn't experience evil. God, God has, there's no darkness in God. There's no evil in God. But, but the, the tree was there and it offered these two things. And I love this from the Net Study Bible. It says, the expression tree of the knowledge of good and evil must be interpreted to mean that the tree would produce fruit which, when eaten, gives special knowledge of what? 
good and evil. Special knowledge being experiential knowledge. They already had good. They were experiencing good every day. They walked with God, talked with God. They were perfect. Everything was great. Their whole life was great. But now they had the option of experiencing evil. And and Satan hid it in this guise of, you're going to get better. You're going to be wiser. You're going to be as God. Not a shadow of God, but you're going to be like God. You're going to know the difference between these two. No, you're going to experience the two. And we saw what happened. So good refers to that which enhances, promotes, and produces life. They didn't need that. They already had that by virtue of the fact that God created them. Evil refers to anything that what? Hinders, interrupts, or destroys life. And see, that's really what Satan was offering them. Satan was saying, you'll be like God, but what Satan was really trying to do was to destroy. It's what he always has tried to do. He is the destroyer. He's the deceiver. He's the liar. And so they have this tree there. It offers these two things. And listen again, what the Net Bible, study Bible says. So eating from this tree would change human nature. That's huge. They had a perfect nature, a sinless nature. Eating of this tree would change human nature. People would be able to alter life for better. Now, this is key in their thinking. In other words, if I do this, my life will get better. What did God just say about their life? Very good. And yet Satan is telling them, oh, no, 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 it could be better. Every temptation you have ever succumbed to is based on this line. If you do this, it'll be better. If you eat this, drink this, smoke this, imbibe this, if you have sex with that woman who's not your wife, your life will be better. You will have more joy. You will have better sex. You will have more appreciation from a woman who really respects you and your wife doesn't. And everything will be better if you do this. But to do this, you're basically disobeying what God has told you not to do. And you're telling God that what you have given me is not enough. I've told you guys this a a million times. When I was in advertising... The motto of anybody in advertising who is honest is, my job is to get you to buy things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. That's the essence of the lie of Satan. You've got to have this. If you get this, you will be happier. You will be better. But it's all in your thinking. It's this idea that, hey, God, you're denying me something. You're holding back on me. And that's exactly what Satan told Eve. Surely God has not said. He just doesn't want you to eat this because he didn't want you to be like him. It'll be better if you eat. But the thing is, it also comes with what? The worse. It comes with the bad part, the evil part, the wicked part. See, they were made morally perfect. But God said, don't eat of this tree because it will now give you the experience of not only good, which you already have, it will give you the experience of evil, which I never wanted you to have. I don't want you to have that. But what happens? Well, we know what happens. It goes from bad to worse or from good to bad, basically. Cain rose up. Who's Cain? One of the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain rose up and he kills his brother Abel. Why did he kill his brother? 
Why did Cain kill Abel? Just boil it down to its bare essence. Jealousy. Jealousy, yeah. Just flat out jealousy. You don't have to dig too deep to find out that this guy was just jealous of his brother because God, God looked at his sacrifice better than his own. And he was jealous, so he kills him. Where did that come from? Had he ever seen a movie? Had he ever played a video game that had violent you know, things in it? No. He'd never seen anybody kill anyone. And yet he kills his brother based on jealousy. He experienced evil. Sadly, so did his brother. He was just on the losing end of that experience. Cain, and then it says, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. What's interesting here is I told you last week, as you read through the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, and the rest of the book of Genesis is the people of God, the people of the world moving further and further away from God. So Cain is born outside of the garden, outside of the presence of God. Now he's going to move even further from the presence of God because it says he settled in the land of Nod. He moves east of the garden. He gets further from God. And mankind has been running from God since the fall. We, we say, well, people are seeking God, but the Bible says no one seeks God. That's why I, I never did like the term seeker-sensitive. There is no one out there lost who is seeker-sensitive or who is seeking after God. They're running from God or they're seeking a false version of God, but not the one true God. And then it gets worse. So things went from good to evil, then they go from bad to worse. What happens next? Listen to this. We're only in chapter six. Chapter one and chapter two are the creation of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve. Chapter three is the fall. Chapter five, we see Cain kill his brother. Now in chapter six, it says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I don't have a clue how many years have gone by. Doesn't tell us. But it, it, it hadn't been that long until it gets to the point where the Lord saw, and that phrase is pretty important because in the early chapters, one and two of Genesis, every time God made something, it says he saw it, he looked at it, and he said what? It's good. Now it says he looks, he sees, and it's wickedness. The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil how much of the time? Always, continually. That's a pretty sad indictment, right? It's not like, well, 50% of the time, it's always. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry, I made them. So Adam and Eve's sin had an impact. Cain killed his brother. And obviously, it got worse from there because he looks down on earth. God looks at the earth, and all he sees is wickedness, and he sees evil. Two statements. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. The thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's that word, ra. Remember? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ra, taub. This is it lived out. This is the fruit of them eating of that tree, disobeying God, doing what God told them not to do. And what it results in is wickedness and evil everywhere, in everyone, not only in man, but in creation. So what God declared good, very good, because he made it, he created it, has now become wicked and evil. Now, if you've ever made anything, if you've ever created anything and you have value in that and you see it destroyed or harmed, it, 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 it kills you, right? Can you imagine how God felt when he looked at his earth and he saw it was now wicked and evil? 
You know, my youngest son, who's, who's now at Harvard, amazingly so, God is gracious, um, when he was growing up, he was, he was one of those kids that just, you couldn't get to do a chore. I, I, go do this, take out the trash, and he'd never do it. Um, and we would punish him, we would restrict him, we would, you know, take away his phone, and, and nothing I could do would make him do a chore. And one of my, my wife was always saying, you know, why don't you get him to mow the yard? Well, I, I, I take real pride in my yard. I work in my yard really hard, and I take pride in the way it looks and how it's mowed. And, and, and I come home from work one day, and I drive up to my once beautiful yard, and it is totally scalped. I mean, like, totally scalped with those mounds of grass laying where the mower went, you know, and I'm like, what in the world happened to my yard? And I go in the house, and I said, Julie, what, did you mow the yard? No, I got Hudson to do it. I went, oh. and I, I was so angry, and I'm like, have you seen it? No, how does it look? It looks terrible. You know, I just, I just lost it. I said, he scalped my yard. He basically killed my yard. And I was angry because he destroyed something that I put a lot of time and effort and energy into and took pride in. Well, why do you think God felt? You know, the reason my son did that was because he didn't ever want to mow the yard again. <laughs> and guess what? He never mowed the yard again. He purposely set it low so he could scout my yard. He was wicked. <laughs> he was evil. And he was punished. But see, God made it good. He took pride in it. He looks at it. Now it's wicked and evil. And what is he going to do? He says, I'm going to blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. But don't miss what he says. Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. I'm sorry I made them all. How bad was the sin of man? It infected everything. Everything's evil. It used to be morally pure and beautiful. Now it's wicked and evil, and God's going to destroy it. He says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Even the earth is corrupt. For all flesh, including man, beasts, birds, fish, had corrupted their way on the earth. What does that mean? I don't really know. Other than that, it was really bad. What were they doing? I think, obviously... The increase in animosity between species and between animals had increased. And God said to Noah, here comes Noah. I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Two words here, corrupt and violence. He says it's corrupt. He says it's filled with violence. And in the Hebrew, one means morally perverted. All of creation is now morally perverted, and it's filled with cruelty, wrong, and injustice. Everywhere God looks, that's what he sees. And remember, what does it say about man? The thoughts of his mind are evil continually. How bad has it gotten? Bad enough for God to destroy what he made. That's pretty bad, right? That'd be, be like me. If I'd gone out, I was so angry, I was so upset that I, I rented a backhoe and totally just hoed up my whole yard. I'm sorry I even planted a yard. I'm done with yards. I'm fed up with yards. God is extremely upset because the earth is corrupt, so he destroys it. But he spares Noah. And I know if you're, if you're even remotely awake this morning, you've got to be thinking, where did Noah come from? 
How come Noah gets spared? When it just said, everybody on the earth is evil and wicked and unholy and unrighteous, and where does this guy come from? Why does he get saved and his family? And what? If everything's wicked, if everything's screwed up, why does he get saved? And why is he called someone who has favor with God? Why does it say he's a righteous man, blameless, flawless? Why does it say he walked with God? Ken, last week you told us that there's nobody outside of a relationship with Christ that bears the image of God, but he seems to be. What's going on here? What is this saying? He's a righteous man. Is he? Is he truly righteous? Is he truly inherently of him, in and of himself righteous? And does he really walk with God, which is really a great definition of what it means to be sanctified, to live a sanctified life? Is that true? And is he true, truly morally blameless? Well, we, we know that he's not truly morally blameless in every area of his life, because if you read the rest of his life, he goes on to do some things that are not morally blameless. But you have to understand, if you're going to study the Old Testament, you've got to study the New Testament. You've got to get the full context of Scripture. And Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, tells us something about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now, what's his motivation? To save his household, right? That's pretty selfish. It doesn't say to save the world. All God said was, if you build this ark, put your family in it, I'll save them. And he's like, okay, I want to save my family. And by this, he condemned the world, the rest of the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 in particular is all about faith. And it chronicles the lives of these great patriarchs, including Noah, who exhibited faith long before the Messiah came to the earth. See, he... he Put his faith in God. Can you imagine what it was like for Noah to have God come and speak to him and say, I want you to build an ark. Build a what? Build an ark. What's an ark? Just build it. I'll give you the plans. And then I want you to put your family in it. And then, oh, yeah, by, by the way, go out and get two of every creature and put them in the ark. Now, we read that story, and if you grew up in the Southern Baptist Church like I did, and in Sunday school we had flannel graphs, you know, the little felt things, and you'd put the little pictures of the animals, and it was this really pristine, kind of a fun story. I think it was a really tough job to go and gather that many animals. I can't even get my dog to come in the house. So, but he did it, right? He did it. I think the hardest part was walking into the ark with all those animals and watching God put the door on and seal it from the outside. That's, that, it took some faith. So he put faith in God. And here's the key point. God set him apart for a purpose. He was sanctified by God. His righteousness was not inherent in himself. It's a righteousness that came through faith in God. When God said, I want you to build an ark, and he did. When God set him apart for a purpose. Why was Noah born for a purpose? Why were you born for a purpose? And it wasn't so you could be an accountant or a banker or so you could live in a certain neighborhood, marry a certain person. That's not your purpose. God set you apart for a purpose. And to understand this, we got to go back to, again, Genesis chapter 5, when he was born. Listen to what his father says. Lamech was 182 years old when his son was born. Can you imagine that? 
I'm 64. I do not want my wife to have a baby right now. I don't want my wife to have a baby next year or the next year. We're done. My kids can have all the kids they want, and I'll be happy to be a granddad. But I don't want to be 182 year old, years old and, and be the father of a child. But he fathers a son, and he calls his name Noah or Noah in the Hebrew. And he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, he was aware that the, there was a curse. He says, this one, Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. When he was born, Lamech said of Noah, I'm going to call him Noah. And what's interesting is Noah, in the Hebrew, Noah, and the word relief sound almost the same. It's a play on words. He's going to bring relief. He's going to save us from what? Our work and our painful toil of our hands. It's a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus, the coming Messiah. Jesus, the hope of the world. See, God was going to use this man, this fallen man, because let's not sugarcoat it. He was a fallen man because everyone was fallen. He had wickedness. He was evil. Yes, he had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, as the book of Hebrews goes on to say. But God would use this man to relieve a condemned world. He saved some. He saved a remnant, including the animals. And Noah's life was characterized by the hand of God's grace. Guys, you're sitting in this room by the grace of God. No, I woke myself up. I drove myself here. You exist by the grace of God, physically exist by the grace of God. You spiritually exist by the grace of God. You are in Christ by the grace of God. You are sanctified by the grace of God. You are becoming more like Christ by the grace of God. Noah's life was characterized by the hand of God's grace. He was set apart. See, he was part of God's redemptive plan. What if God had not set apart Noah? What if God had never had anyone build that ark? Where would we be? We wouldn't be. Jesus Christ would never have been born. Mary never would have existed to bear the Messiah. See, God had a redemptive plan. And God is going to and has been and is still dealing with the fallen state of creation. And it won't be completely fixed until when? The book of Revelation, the end, when he recreates everything. He doesn't put a Band-Aid on it. He recreates it. He puts it back the way it was meant to be. And guess what? He has always been using fallen men to accomplish his will. Now I look at that and I go, man, if I were God, I wouldn't use fallen men. I'd use, I'd use perfect men like me. Well, yeah, that, there aren't any perfect men, including me. But God used men like Noah. In chapter 11 of Hebrews, look at this list. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Now, some of those names you're not familiar with, but most of them you are. And if you know anything about any of them, what do you know about them? They're all sinners. David was one of the greatest sinners that ever lived. He committed adultery and then murdered the man so he could marry his wife. Rahab was a harlot. You dig into any of these people. Yes, Abraham was a man who was reckoned righteous because of his faith, but he also doubted a lot. He's the guy that slept with his wife's maidservant so he could have an heir. And that didn't work out too well for him. All of these people were flawed. All of these people were fallen. And yet God used all of them to accomplish his will. And they're all recognized for what? Their faith. 
They had faith in God, and their faith counted to them as righteousness. And then Hebrews goes on and says, of all these people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of, fire, power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, every one of those is an earthly thing, right? It's something they did in their lives. And we, we should be able to say all of this about everyone in this room. That at the end of your life, we could say, he, he showed faith, he enforced justice, he obtained promises, he stopped the mouths of lions, not literally, but spiritually. You did great deeds for God because of your faith in God. You were set apart by God, and you lived a sanctified life, and you accomplished great things on behalf of God. God has always been using fallen people to accomplish his will, and that's what sanctification is all about. But what it says about these people, Old Testament people like Noah, is they were preparing the way for something better. Listen to what it says. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better. What's the something better? Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, these people didn't get perfected in their earthly life. But they had faith in what was to come. They put their faith in the promises of God, which is why they were reckoned righteous at that point in time. And they're all sitting up in heaven waiting for us to show up to join them. So again, what's this got to do with sanctification? Everything. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. Since we have been justified by faith, made right with God, we have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We now have access to God again, just like Adam and Eve did. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then he goes on and he says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly, us, sinners, fallen people. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were raw, not taub. When we were evil, not good. See, nobody's good. There's no one righteous. No, not one. And yet at the right time, Christ died for who? Us. He died for you. He died for me. And if you don't understand how bad things were after the fall, you'll never understand how bad you were before salvation. And one of the reasons we take salvation so lightly and take it for granted is because we don't really know how badly we needed salvation. I wasn't that bad. I'm a pretty good guy. I deserve to be saved. I was halfway to heaven anyway. No, you really weren't. You were on your way to hell. And God redeemed you out of your evil, out of your raw. And so Jesus became Adam 2.0, the second Adam, the final Adam. He did what Adam failed to do. He did what Adam was created to do. He kept God's will and God's law. So real quickly, this is in your notes, but I wanted to compare Adam 1.0, the original Adam, and Adam 2.0, Jesus Christ. Look what it says. One was created by God, one was the creator God. Jesus Christ actually created Adam. Think about that. And then he became like Adam in the sense of taking on human flesh. One was made in God's image, Adam, but Jesus was the exact image of God. He didn't just mirror God, shadow God. He was God in human form. One was made without sin. One was born without sin. See, they were both sinless, right? They were both made sinless or came out sinless, 
One was given a mandate, so was the other. But one disobeyed and one obeyed. Philippians 2 says, Jesus Christ obeyed all the way to the point of death, death on the cross. One brought sin and death into the world. One brought forgiveness and life. One died for his sins and the other died for sinners, you and I. Huge difference between these two men. One, one's act led to condemnation for all mankind. One's act led to justification for those who would place their faith in him. Through one sin reign, through Jesus Christ, grace reign. And grace is everything, guys. Grace is the key to what we're talking about when we talk about sanctification. Because listen again to what Paul says in Romans. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification, being made right with God, and life for all men and all those who place their faith in him. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many, not everyone on the planet, not universal salvation for all, but those who place their faith in him will be made righteous. That's you and me. If you're in Christ, you're righteous. You have been made whole. You have been made right. And he goes on and says, where sin increased, what did we just see in book of Genesis? Sin was increasing. It got to the point where God said, it's evil all the time. Wickedness is everywhere. I'm going to destroy it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the key. Adam was the key to our condemnation. Jesus is the key to our sanctification. It's the only way we can be sanctified, set apart, have a relationship with God, live Christ-like lives. So I love this from 1 Corinthians. First, the first Adam became a living person. He was, had life breathed into him by God. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual, Jesus, did not come first, but the natural, Adam. But Adam fell. Then came the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, made of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the one made of dust, so too are those made of dust. In other words, everyone since Adam has been made in the form of Adam. They are men of dust. And like the one from heaven, so too to those who are heavenly. And just as we have been born into the image of the man of dust, let us also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's what sanctification is. Bearing the image of the man of heaven. Let us also bear what? The image of the man of heaven. All men are made in the image of God. All men are created in the image of God, but not all men bear the image of God. We are called to bear the image of God. And two things, we are spiritual and no longer natural, guys. And I know that's really hard for you to see and understand and feel because you feel natural. I was talking to one of the guys this morning who's got kidney stones. It sucks to get old. Um, we all have ailments. We all have difficulty. We all have issues going on, but we are spiritual and no longer natural. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It's all foolish to them, and they can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. That's us. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated by others. In other words, we have the capacity to understand the great truths of God. We can understand sanctification and live it out. Secondly, we bear the image of Christ, not Adam. You are not Adam anymore. You are Adam 2.0. You're different. It says in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You bear Christ. You wear Christ. You are in Christ. You are sanctified. You're set apart. 
And Paul goes on with the Romans and says, you are to be conformed, continually, repeatedly conformed to what? The image of his son. That's sanctification. That's what it's all about. But see, guys, if you don't understand how bad it was, if you don't understand how ungodly you were, and that you still have a sin nature that you're battling every day, you'll never fully understand how difficult, no, not how difficult, how impossible sanctification is, and how deeply and desperately you need the grace of God every day to live the life that you've been called to live. It's not about your self-effort. It's about total dependence upon God and his Holy Spirit. So here's your first question. What are some ways in which Christians still tend to bear the image of Adam, the man of dust? How does this impact our witness? In other words, how do we go out? You're going to leave here today and go somewhere, play golf, go to work, whatever you do. You're going to bear an image, either the image of the son of heaven, the man of heaven, or the man of dust. When we bear the image of the man of dust, what does that look like and how does it screw up our witness? Secondly, discuss the ways in which you've seen Christians bear the image of Jesus. What does this look like in real life and what keeps us from doing it more? In other words, you probably know somebody who, when you look at them and go, man, he bears the image of Jesus. He looks like Christ to me. Why don't we all do that more? What keeps us from doing that? And then finally, why is the grace of God so important, even when talking about sanctification? What are some practical ways we can use God's grace to encourage one another? And this one is really important to me because the reason you're sitting at these tables is we want you to extend grace. One day, somebody's going to come in and go, man, I really failed this week. I didn't have a quiet time. I've, I've not prayed very much this week. I don't feel like I'm a very good Christian. What he needs to hear is not, get your act together. He needs to hear you say, extend grace to yourself. Let me encourage you. Let me hold you accountable. Let us pray for you. Let us love on you. See, guys, we need grace in order to grow in Christ's likeness. And a lot of that grace not only just comes from God, it comes from you, from one another. Father, I thank you for these men. Thank you for their attentiveness. Thank you for the willingness to come and listen to these talks and then discuss them. And I pray that as they do discuss, that you would guide their conversation, that they would encourage one another, show grace to one another, um, challenge one another, Father, that we might live like Adam 2.0, not 1.0. That we would realize that we are spiritual, not natural. That we are not of this earth anymore. That we have been set apart, that we have been sanctified, that we belong to you, that we have your spirit living within us, and we can live like who we are, sons of God, with your help and your Holy Spirit's power. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.